Please look with me at Luke chapter 9. Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. Very, very sobering words from the Lord Jesus, which he spoke to the crowd. Verse 23. And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. What is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me in my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. It was wonderful to hear Dan introduce that song with discussion about being a living sacrifice because that is precisely the principal point that Jesus makes here when he's speaking to the crowd. Jesus is talking about real discipleship, real following. You remember that there had been already opinions going around the land about Christ. They had reached all the way to the the palace walls in Jerusalem and all the way out to the outlying areas and all along the shores of Galilee where he did a tremendous amount of ministry and teaching. All kinds of opinions about him. But you remember that through a series of events which Luke sort of compacts into one flow, one continuous flow, Jesus put the pointed question to the disciples, who are the people saying that I am? And with their finger on the pulse of all the crowds they've been with, He said, well, they had reported to the palace walls that you're some sort of resurrected prophet, a mystifying miracle worker, someone who unnerved Herod. But the people themselves are saying the same thing. They're reporting it to the palace, but they themselves are arguing and debating the issue. I'm not sure. He might be the returned Elijah. Some say that a prophet was to return from the dead or whatever. An Old Testament figure. And then Jesus said, whom do you say that I am? And they professed what had been given to them by the Spirit of God and His divine sovereignty. God had opened their eyes. He had granted them faith and repentance. They saw their sin. They knew Christ. And while they didn't understand the implications, they didn't understand all their theology, not everything was plugged in yet, and they had still much to learn and much sin to see the Spirit overcome as they conformed to Christ. They said by the Spirit of God, with Peter as the mouthpiece, you are the Messiah. We're your followers because where else are we going to go when the crowd left They said, where else are we going to find the words of eternal life? You're it. And then Jesus proceeds to tell them what that path is going to look like. It is not a happy path. It's not a happy path for the Savior. It's not a happy path for his followers. Verse 22, after warning them not to tell this to anyone, the Son of Man then he said, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And that's when, in all those events, Luke just compacts it to this conversation. After they've been in prayer alone, he brings the disciples out. A crowd is there and here in front of this crowd, he says to all of them, you wish to follow me? Here's what a true follower's view of me looks like. And in in essence, he is saying, I am their Lord and Master. Anyone who truly follows me, I am the Lord and Master. My path is their path. My way is their way. My teaching is what they follow. Where I go, they go. What I do, they do. What happens to me 
happens to them. That's the issue here. And we need to get this statement straight. The words Jesus spoke that day can't be interpreted any way we might want to interpret them. This is a deliberate use of particular words that everyone in the crowd would have readily understood. If you wish to come after me, your translation says wish, but the word is much stronger than that. The word indicates the will. It indicates that you say it with your mouth, that you're wanting to do something, and you embark upon a vow to actually go about doing it. Somewhere in this word, there's always the aspect of the will, a strong desire. Sometimes it takes on the sense of resolve. If anyone resolves to come after me as their sole purpose... Sometimes it conveys the idea of the inner longing. If you long to follow me, if you resolve in your mind and heart to follow me, and this context clearly speaks of the will, and it is expressed in a profession of faith. You say you love Christ, you say you want Christ, you say that your stated intent is to live a life of sacrifice for the master, slavery to him, indentured to his service and his will, Everyone in the crowd had made verbal professions because that's why they were there. Some sort of verbal profession. From the curious to the spoken devotee, they'd made verbal and practical intentions that they would walk in his ways. And Jesus says, well, that has a cost. You don't walk in his path by adding some of his nice teachings about love and compassion to everything else you love about this earthly life. You don't do that. That's not following his path. You don't walk in his path of life by hanging a bunch of Christian trinkets in your house. Several years ago, Christian artist Stephen Curtis Chapman wrote a song called The Change. I always liked the opening lyrics of that song. I got myself a t-shirt that says what I believe. I got letters on my bracelet to serve as my ID. I got the necklace and the keychain and almost everything a good Christian needs. I got the Bible, little Bible magnets on my refrigerator door and a welcome mat to bless you before you walk across my floor. I've even got a Jesus bumper sticker and the outline of a fish stuck on my car. That sounds pretty familiar to us, doesn't it? If you walk in the path of Jesus, you can't do it by by banking on some personal experience you had in the past, adding to your life a bunch of Jesus junk, things that make you feel good about where you're at with Jesus. He never called men and women to join some social club, some movement. He didn't call sinners to become part of a self-help group to, to get to some moral higher ground. He never allowed any would-be follower to imagine that they'd get to offer their own personal achievements as some sort of relational collateral with him. What Jesus called men and women to do was to follow him, to walk in him wherever that took him, whatever that might mean. Not to follow him along with some of them. Not to follow a lot of themselves with bits of him added here and there. And so today, if it is the conviction of your heart, soul, and mind by faith that Jesus is the Messiah and he is who he claims to be, then you've identified with him. And you've not only identified with him, but you become a partaker of all that comes to those who follow him and associate with him. Jesus had said in private to his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be hated and humiliated and beaten and killed. And so here in the hearing of those disciples who heard that privately, there is this public expression to the entire crowd. 
If you want to truly be my follower, you must desire me above anyone or anything else because to truly believe in me and follow me is to face everything that comes with such a life. And Jesus' way of life was one of increasing isolation from creature comforts. He was, as the prophet had said, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You say, we're supposed to be filled with joy. You know what? In Christ, you have a joy that doesn't leave. It's an undercurrent of resurrection joy for what is to come. The joy set before him is now the joy set out in front of you. But in this life, in your striving against sin, there is grief. In your bearing of his reproach, there is heartache, pain. His life was literally the unenviable life of suffering and heartache. The Savior, born so long ago, came not for earthly glory. The broken path would be his lot. Disgrace would be his story. With your finger in Luke, look back at Philippians 3, the passage I read. You caught it, no doubt, as I read Paul's discussion of his own conversion here. But in Philippians 3, I hope you didn't miss what he had said about his present Christian life. He had come to Christ by faith and was not counting on a righteousness of his own, verse 9. But it was a righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And then verse 10, here's his purpose. Here's what drives him. That I may know him. You say, yes, I want to know Christ. Well, then you need to know the power of his resurrection. Resurrection life coursing through your veins, power over sin. And then if you want to know him and have the power of his resurrection coursing through your spiritual life, verse 10, then you must know the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. There is a death involved at your conversion, the death of you. And there is an ongoing, residual, continual dying of all of the selfishness that still roams around in our unredeemed humanity. Notice he says in verse 8 that he counts all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish. He's not saying he lost every physical comfort on earth or that he never had a, a cool drink or the sunlight on his face or never any common graces or that God took everything from him, funds, finances, Even care in prison. People ministered to him while he was in prison. He's not saying he suffered the loss of all that a human being might have in temporal life. He's saying, I suffered the loss of any trust in any of those things completely and utterly. I died when I came to Christ. I died to know the surpassing value of his greatness. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 26, speaking about the faith of Moses, it says that by faith, verse 26 of Hebrews 11, Moses, when he'd grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. He knew they were passing. They might have been pleasurable and enticing, but they were sin and therefore they were passing. And he considered the reproach of Christ greater riches. Wow. Than all the riches of Egypt. He had palace life. With a nod, a simple nod, he could have anything he wanted. Half the kingdom at his disposal. Food, pleasures, wisdom, knowledge, power, money, military might. But rather than passing pleasures, he chose to endure ill treatment with the people of God, bearing the reproach of Christ as a greater treasure. That is what Jesus is talking about. 
It's as he said in the parables of Matthew 13. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and he bought it. That's conversion. You get rid of all that you trusted in before to have Christ. That's it. That's every true follower's view. Back to Luke 9. What a marvelous text because Jesus then told his disciples that they must, if they're going to follow him, have a weighty, very heavy view of redemption's price. Verse 22, I'm so glad he included this verse. The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. There's going to have to be a death. You're going to have to go through it. You're going to have to pass through it. If you're going to follow me, you're going to have to pass through my death. It's going to mean the death of you. Just like I'm laying my life down, you've got to lay your life down. Or you can't have me. He told them of the sin bearer. He told them of the eternal decree. He must suffer. He told them of the untold depth. He's going to suffer many things all the way unto his own father's rejection of him and the sting of guilt which he never earned, sins he never committed. He would face them all, own them all, embrace them all, drink that cup to the last drop. And then the scandalous treason of the rejection of his own people. How painful. It'd be like you walking into your home. Beloved family members who embraced you an hour earlier all of a sudden disowning you. I remember a story years ago about a Muslim that came to Christ. It was told in a feature film called Behind the Sun. A friend of mine directed the film. And that's what they would call it when a, when a person from Islam would be converted to Christianity. They said they went behind the sun. You can't see them. You'll never find them. You disown them. And in the film, this feature film, the father, the Muslim father, says to his converted son, I cut you from my life like a cancer. Jesus was cut from his father's heart like a cancer on the cross. And when we say we follow Christ, we are saying our life is cut from ourselves like a cancer, the old us, in order to gain Christ. What does it mean? Well, he gives us three obligations here, followed by three forewarnings. This is what it looks like to follow Christ. This is what it looked like at your conversion, though you may not have understood the implications. This is what it looks like to live that sacrificial life that Dan talked about earlier. This is what it means to lay your life down as a living sacrifice. This is what it means to die and to embrace Christ. This is what Paul meant. Three obligations followed by three forewarnings. Obligation number one, disown Self, disown self. Notice, if anyone desires, wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. He must deny himself. It's a very, very important term. Very important word. By the way, all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, include this verse, and all three of them leave the terms exactly as they are. The only word that is different in each one is when Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me, that verb to come, there are synonyms used in, that, in those sections. But other than that, the whole entire section is exactly the same. Only Luke gives us an interpretive comment by saying you must take up your cross daily and he interprets exactly what Jesus meant to the people standing around but both Matthew Mark 
and now Luke, they all give it in exactly the same way. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. And all of them use this word. In fact, two of them use the intensified version of it. Let me just sort of walk you through a little bit so you get an understanding of what this means so we don't misunderstand it. In context where someone was demanding something from someone else, this word would be used to describe an outright refusal, an outright rejecting of the demand. The opposite would be to acquiesce. In other contexts where two people are debating an issue, this word means to put up a dispute, to completely dispute someone's argument. In the Old Testament, there's only one time where the Greek version of this word is used to translate the Hebrew term, and in that text, it means to throw up a dispute, to strongly reject and argue against. The more intense form of this word is also found in the Old Testament. It takes the meaning to flatly reject. It's a definitive, very decisive blow. In the New Testament, this word is found most often, 32 times in the Gospels mostly, a little bit in the book of Acts, and a few times elsewhere in certain forms. The word came to not only mean to refuse or to reject, but literally to disown, to outright disown. And the reason it was used to mean disown was because of how it was applied to people who denied and rejected Jesus Christ. They disowned him. So the word came to refer to someone who utterly leaves Christ and no longer remains faithful to him. And so the opposite of that sense of the word would be to remain faithful and loyal to. So here's the point that Luke is making and the the other gospel writers are making. Here's what Jesus said by using this word. To follow Christ then means that a person's own self-interest, the person's own self-absorption, self-care... The person's own self-interest must become completely swallowed up in interest for Christ. We could say that to deny yourself means then to disown everything that is about you and to only live for everything that is about Christ. Your opinions, your ideas, your intellect, your smarts, your well-being the things that make your world comfortable, the things you like about life, your likes, your dislikes. Compared with other people, fine, we're different. Compared with Christ, they get swallowed up, they go away. In the courtyard when Peter was accused of being a disciple of Christ, the text in Matthew 26, 72 uses this word and says that Peter denied knowing Christ with an oath. He denied, he outright rejected, he disowned Christ. And Jesus used that same word, this same word, when he forewarned Peter that Peter's pride and his fear of man would drive him to deny, to disown the master. You will deny me, same word. I like Lenski's commentary. He said, using Peter as an analogy, as Peter denied Jesus saying, I know not the man, so must you say this to yourself, I disown you completely. To know Christ. Wow. I disown myself completely as to my exaltation, preservation, opinions, life. Compared to Christ, it doesn't amount to anything. That's what Paul meant when he said, I count it as trash, spiritual trash. It doesn't do anything spiritually, it accomplishes nothing, it's worthy of nothing in order that I may gain Christ. If you say you're in Christ, though though you may not always live for him as you ought, you must, in that moment of faith, have come to the place where you believed Jesus is Lord and that your own life is worthy of condemnation and not worth preserving. If you preserved any of your own self to trust in your own self, you're not a Christian. That's a fact. Because it is produced by the Spirit of God in conversion, and when you came to Christ and admitted him and confessed him, you were saying, I am not worthy to hold on to and trust in. My works, my righteousness, my opinion, my intellect, my goodness, my achievements. In conversion, they got trashed. They must have, or you're not saved. 
Make no mistake, beloved, Jesus is talking here first about conversion. And when you repent and believe the gospel, you are in fact taking all of Christ and disowning all of yourself. And that moment of faith then becomes the grace of God in the death of you and the power of God to cause you to reach for Christ and Christ alone in faith. That's the first obligation Jesus says to the disciples here who are hanging around following him. If anyone wishes to come after me, you gotta disown yourself. Everything you've brought to the hillside, everything you brought to that church service, everything you brought to that religious message, everything you brought to that sermon that was the real gospel, everything you brought to that grandparent who said you need to believe, everything you brought to that parent who made you pray that prayer, if you really came to Christ, then you came with none of you as the basis for your salvation. You came only in the power of the Spirit, saying, I completely and utterly disown me in order that I may have Christ. Obligation number two. Obligation number two. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily. Obligation number two, you must sacrifice everything. You must sacrifice everything. You know that the crowd is standing around listening to Jesus, and they are in the first century. The Phoenicians had created the, or invented really is the way to say it. They had invented in ancient times the practice of taking a human being who was a criminal humiliating him, beating him, putting wood on his back so that he carries his cross down a path to a place of execution. He is then strapped or nailed or bound to the wood and he is suspended in humiliation with his crimes above his head written down. Everyone was to see him. There was a whole line of them outside the gates of the city. He was an outcast. He was criminal, worthy of this punishment. It was a long and terrible and humiliating and indignant punishment, painful, excruciating, and your family and friends and loved ones and anyone who might be a compassionate person in the area was helpless to do anything about it. It was devastating. And you were going to die. If it was a fast death, it was a grace. Mostly they were slow deaths, sometimes ended by Vultures finishing you off while alive. Every person in the crowd heard that. You must take up your cross. Take up your cross. Take up his cross, the personal cross. He's not talking here about, you know, the fact that someone keyed your Lexus the fact that you struggle to pay your bills sometimes. I'm talking about even the difficult trials that we face that are real trials. He's not talking about that. He's not talking about that at all. What does it mean to take up your cross daily? It means to die to you daily. He's not talking about bearing up under physical pain, circumstantial difficulty, even pressure. He's not talking about that. You must bear up under that. Of course, you must count those things as joy because they're going to produce endurance, James chapter 1 says. What he's talking about here in this crucifixion metaphor is to be prepared for a life in following Christ, a life of reproach and death. I know what you want to do. I know what you want to do when someone comes up to you and says, you know, you go to a narrow church legalistic bunch. You're not compassionate. You're hateful. You don't allow for and tolerate the things that culture should tolerate. You take away people's happiness. 
You speak against their joy and their fulfillment when you say that morality is this and marriage is only this and that is a sin and that you must repent of. When you do that, you don't care about people. You don't care about your neighbors. You don't care about community. I know what happens to you in your heart when you hear those things. Fear of man rises up. I don't know that I want to be known as being a part of a church like that. And then over here, you know Christ, and you're sitting here on Sunday amidst the brethren, and you're singing Christ's praises. In Christ alone will I glory. And you walk out that door, and somebody throws a sling of reproach like mud all over you. And you're tempted to soften the reproach. Jesus is saying in that moment, you take up your cross daily. Throughout the day, through the day, literally, Luke writes it. You take up your cross of reproach. You take up the name of Christ and bear the blows that are meant for him. You look at people's accusations and persecution as it comes at you, and you count it a precious privilege to take a blow for Christ because he was going to Jerusalem and he was going to be rejected by his own people. You're rejected by your family. Someone wants to cut you out of their life like a cancer. You accept it. You bear it. You die to self. You die to self-preservation in that moment. You seek forgiveness for fear of men. And you say, oh Lord, if you went to the cross for me, and you bore your heavenly Father's rejection for me, then these rejections and reproaches meant for me because they're meant for you, I bear them. I die to self. I will not quiet the truth. I will love souls like you loved souls. I will reach out with the gospel though getting slapped in the face. I will face those who hate the truth and give them the truth. And when they want to hit me again with their blows, I will turn and open up myself with another cheek ready to be struck by giving them more truth in love. That's what Jesus is saying. Paul said, I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. What does that mean? I want to share in the sufferings of Christ. He would later say, I want to fill up that which is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. He's not saying Christ didn't suffer all the way to the end. He's saying that Christ meant for his followers to add suffering upon suffering until we meet Christ because we bear his name. How's anybody going to get saved if we don't go out and bear his name? If we don't bear his reproach? If we huddle together in fear and self-preservation we don't die to self. Paul said, brethren, to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, 31, brethren, by boasting about you having come to Christ, I'm boasting in you having come to Christ, and I have this boast which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, and I'm telling you this, I die daily. Every day, he says, I die to uh, more of me and more of my tendency to exalt myself and more of the selfish tendency to preserve myself and save myself. I die daily for the sake of your growth. Can you say that when you think about living a crucified life? It's interesting that In the great sermons of Wilbur Smith, they became popular because of this very theme. Billy Graham, on a sermon called The Offense of the Cross, quoted Smith. This is what came out in that sermon. When Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you have to take up a cross, it was the same as saying, come and bring your electric chair with you. Take up the gas chamber and follow me. He did not have a beautiful gold cross in mind, the cross on a church steeple or on the front of your Bible. Jesus had in mind a place of execution. End quote. That's right. The execution of yourself. Third obligation. The third obligation. Take up his cross daily and follow me. The third obligation is obey him. 
follow me. What does this term mean? It means what he says and where he goes and what he does. You're a slave to your master. He's worthy of your allegiance. Whatever he says, whatever it costs. Lord, when I die to self, I am gaining everything you are and everything you have to offer. If I don't die to self, I, I give up everything that you are and everything you offer. Obedience. This is why this hyper-focus on, on grace that really isn't biblical grace is so dangerous for the church. Because you get away from passages like this. I want to talk about grace, but what does grace lead to? What does grace and the power of it cause you to do? It causes you to live a crucified life. The grace of Christ never caused me to preserve myself. The grace of Christ in all of its purity has always caused me to look at the Lord Jesus and say he's worthy. I'm the problem. He's worthy. And he's worthy in ways I don't even know yet. But the worthiness I do understand I still don't live up to yet. And he's worthy. He's worthy of my allegiance. If he says it, I, I want to conform to it. If he says it, I want to believe it. If he says it, I want to yield to it. I don't want to dispute, argue, reject. I don't want to disown any of him. I want to disown all of me and own him and embrace him and become possessed by him. I want to press on for the thing which I've been laid hold of. I want to lay hold of it. I now have the power to. He's laid hold of me. I want to press on and lay hold of him. That's what it looks like. Those are your obligations. When you come to Christ, you disown self. You take up the, the reproach of Christ and you bear it, whatever it might mean. I, I know we live in a comfortable culture and, and we've never yet to this day had to go out of these doors fearing for our life or, or fearing that somehow we're going to be in a neighborhood and, and all they're going to do is pick it or throw bricks through our windows as some have have uh, borne through the years across the globe. We've never had to face that yet. But Jesus said, if you say you follow me, I want you to lay it all on the altar. And when I ask you to bear my reproach at that level, will you bear my reproach at that level? Why is this the only eternally preserving path? Why is this the only profitable path? And why is this the only eternally pardoning path? Why is it that if you do not embrace this, you cannot know eternal pardon? Well, Jesus speaks some forewarnings here. Very simple, three of them. And they're all explanatory of his statement in verse 23. Verse 24 gives us the first one. To serve self is to lose all you hold. Verse 24, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Again, that same term, desires. You long to save your life? Save just means preserve. Uphold and sustain and preserve. That's the word, sozo. It's how it's being used here in the context. To hold your life, preserve it, sustain it the way you want it in the temporal things of this life. You don't want to bear the reproach of Christ. You fear man. Or you don't want to give up your toys and, and your things and your comforts. You want to hold and preserve your life? You will lose it. Lose here is the word for utterly destroy. It will go to utter destruction. You cannot have it like that. If you serve self, you'll lose all you hold. But notice Jesus turns the statement around in this great parallel and contrast. But whoever loses or literally gives up disowns in the verse 23 sense, but here the sense utterly gives it up to destruction. You give up your earthly life up to, to its worthlessness. If you lose your life for my sake, he is the one who will preserve it. This is why this is the only eternally preserving path. 
On October 28 of 1949, Jim Elliott spoke those famous words. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. That's why it's the only eternally preserving path. Why is it, is it the only eternally profitable path? Here's the next forewarning. To gain the earth and lose your eternal soul is to gain nothing at all. Verse 25. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself. I love the terms here. If he gains the whole world, it is the Greek word which, which has sort of that profit idea embedded in it. So you see what Jesus is doing. He's using terms that are memorable and, and back and forth that is very memorable. What is a man profited, benefited, given as an advantage if he gains? He uses another word for profit. What advantage or gain do you get if you gather up and gain the whole world as your profit and then you lose, same word, destroy, or forfeit, which is the word to suffer damage, and forfeit yourself. You suffer permanent, irreparable, eternal damage as your loss. Well, I can tell you this, there's no profit in that. So, you gather barns, you gather things, you hold on to things, you won't bear the reproach of Christ, you, you, you sit here, you talk religion, you, whatever the case may be, and, and yet when it comes time to die to self in the most important ways, the most critical ways of trusting Christ rather than your own self, you might have everything the world offers. And Jesus says, you will have suffered such irreparable, eternal damage. You will have forfeited yourself. The other texts say, lose your own soul. The soul is the only thing that's eternal. Did you know that? What are you going to take with you? What? I mean, I, I like a lot of things. Temporal things. I enjoy them. You know, it's nice to take a car on a family vacation and build memories and have some photo albums and wonderful times together, gifts given at Christmas and special times, even maybe that thing you love the most about your hobby and you get that thing and you're just like, wow, this is incredible. I get to enjoy life at this level. This is amazing. Really? Doesn't all of that just end up unsatisfying anyway. You know, when I was a kid, we used to go to Disneyland every year. And you know what? I couldn't wait till the day our family had saved up and we could go to Disneyland. Four boys and my parents at Disneyland. Can you imagine? <laughs> Disneyland. I mean, it was just, it was just, it was incredible to a kid. And you know what just was terrible? That ride home always came. And it was dark. And there we were in our little Volkswagen fastback across the seat, four of us, you know, kicking each other, elbowing each other. It's over. No more candy, no more lights, no more rides. For those of you who are old enough, no more e-tickets. <laughs> Everything's like that, isn't it? You go see the leaves turn up in the northeast and... And then they turn and everything gets brown. It's ugly. It doesn't last. It was beautiful for a moment. You had a nice cup of tea. Your breath, you could see your breath. It's wonderful. It slips through your hands. It's nothing. The best experiences of life, even the wonderful things that God designed in his perfection are tainted with sin and they don't last. Jesus said everything that he created is now corrupt with sin and it's all passing. It doesn't last. So what does it profit someone? What advantage is it to gather all that up? And when you face God, you, that means nothing. It's not a party in hell with your friends and all the things you liked. Because you lose your soul. Even if a party did go on there and Satan put it on, you wouldn't attend. Because you lost your soul. 
It's not a party for you. It won't be for him either. It's very clear. You destroy your own soul. You suffer irreparable eternal damage. You forfeit yourself. That's why this is the only eternally profitable path. And it's also, lastly, the only eternally pardoning path. It's the only way to know you're actually pardoned. Verse 26, whoever is ashamed of me. Now you know he's talking about reproach. Whoever is ashamed of me in my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. The word ashamed here means humiliated by association with. That's essentially how it's being used here. It's essentially how the word is used in most of its uses. Ashamed and humiliated by being associated with. Jesus says, if you're humiliated by your association with me and you're humiliated by your association and identity with my truth, with my words, then the Son of Man, that is to say the person who should have been your representative and advocate at God's bar of justice, the the second Adam, the Son of Man, he should have been your advocate. He won't be your advocate. In fact, he'll be the prosecuting attorney and he'll be judge and jury and sentencer. He'll be humiliated by his association with you. That you ever attached yourself to Grace Emmanuel Bible Church, that you ever attached yourself to the gospel, he will be humiliated by the association you had with him. When? When he comes in his glory. You know the word there is doxa? When he comes in his praise when he comes in his honor. And notice, the Father is there, and the holy angels are there. When he comes, and everyone around the throne, the angels, all other creatures, are praising and honoring Christ, you will have bought his ashamed dishonor of you. Because you grabbed onto this life You wanted to save it. Being ashamed of Christ now means knowing his rejection in eternity. But the opposite is true. You bear his reproach now. You die to self a little more every day. In the power of the Spirit, you don't preserve yourself, but you take heed to these four warnings. You live in light of the power of the Spirit of God to live out these obligations. You, you disown yourself, your own opinions, your own high thoughts of you, your own trust in you. Stop it. Stop trusting in you. Stop lifting up yourself and your power and your achievements, your athleticism, your intellect, your background, your money, all the things that commend you to you, your beauty, whatever. Stop it. Disown you in terms of trusting any of it and embrace Christ and only trust him. Look to his word. Conform to it. Love it. And when he comes, he will not be ashamed of you. He'll call you friend because your salvation will have been genuine. Who do you say that he is? If you say that he's Lord and Master, then do you live following him wherever that takes you and whatever it costs? Beloved, this is not some shallow, cheesy treatment of, you know, you dying to some simple little practical thing in your life. This is salvation. This is what it means to follow Christ, to believe him to such a degree that you disown yourself and you embrace him. Live for him no matter what. Amen? Father, thank you for your word to us by our glorious Lord Jesus Christ today. This is so gripping to us that you would love us in spite of the fact that we don't always manifest this kind of sacrificial life. 
But we who know and love you came to you as Paul did that one day. And we trashed it all, trust in ourselves, trust in our achievements, religion, goodness, in order that we might gain you. And now we embark upon a life of fellowship of your sufferings and at times, Lord, we just fear men. We fear the loss of the way we used to have it here in our culture, the way we used to live. Sometimes we're just so uninterested in bearing your reproach that anybody who says we're uncool or narrow, we begin to wince. And instead of defending the truth and defending you, we shy away. Please forgive us for that. As Peter was afraid, we get afraid and sifted and found wanting. Please help us, O God, to be faithful to you. Help us, Lord, to bear the reproach you bore for us. Help us to walk faithfully in these things and press on to the upward call of God in Christ. Help us to manifest in our hearts a submissiveness to your truth as our master, to come under your lordship with joy because you're worthy. Thank you that you've taught us and warned us that preserving this life will only end in its utter destruction. But giving our lives up for whatever, including destruction, so that we might live for you is to preserve our eternity. And so give us the power to do it. Help us see it rightly. And anyone here who has never believed but just professes that you're the Messiah, but maybe they are just like Herod or just like the crowd. May it not be. May they be genuine followers because they have come in this way that you have asked, commanded. And we just lay this before you submissively in your holy name. Amen.